And I want to ask you a question. I want you to think carefully about this question. Was Christ a high priest in heaven during the Old Testament period? When you think about that question carefully, it's usually yes or no. And uh, I want you to really give it some, some thought. Was Christ a high priest in the Old Testament period in heaven? Okay, we have some yes and we have some no. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a time when human beings are going to be required to live in the sight of God without a mediator, right? This time period is at the very end. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. We're going to possibly touch on some things that might be uh, confusing or hard to understand, and I want to be able to clearly express uh, that which I'm hoping to convey and in the process uplift and magnify Christ. So uh, I'd really like you to pray for me. So I'll go to the Lord in prayer right now. I'll give you an opportunity to do that. And then I'll open up with a word of prayer. Of course, with a title like this, you might be wondering what is this talking about? And uh, I realize some of you might already have heard what we are going to talk about. So I don't want you to switch off if you have heard because uh, I'm, I'm hoping to maybe uh, clarify things a little clearer than... Uh, I might have before, and so I pray that you'll give me your attention uh, as well. And talking about Enoch and the high priest, what does Enoch have to do with the high priest? Hopefully, we'll find out at the end. But one point that I want to keep in mind in the, in, in the process of the study is this. One of the verses that really stand out in the New Testament that we repeat often is where Paul says, God forbid that I should glory save in what? In the cross of Jesus Christ. And he actually said at one point he didn't want to preach about anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, we quote these verses a lot, but what do they actually mean? Paul saw something in the cross of Christ. And when we talk about the cross, we're talking about the whole experience of Christ as a man dying and obviously resurrecting. That's part of the meaning of cross. Paul saw, saw, Paul saw something in the meaning of the cross that to him, that's all he wanted to talk about. And I want to magnify the meaning of the cross today. This is the purpose of the study. To magnify what Christ has accomplished, what Christ has done for us on that cross. So that maybe we can appreciate it a little bit better perhaps than we have. If, if this is done, then mission accomplished. And in doing so, I, I want to do it from a little bit of a different perspective. And that's the perspective of Enoch. And of course, when I talk about Enoch here, Enoch is representative of a number of individuals, not many, who are in heaven. Enoch, of course, uh, the Bible tells us he was taken to heaven. He, was, he walked with God and he was taken to heaven. So if we, were, if we were to illustrate this, Enoch was in heaven. You know, the cross is in our timeline there. And Enoch was in heaven for quite a while. He was taken about 3000 BC, roughly. That's a long time in the kingdom, right? And like I said, Enoch is not the only one there. Enoch was joined by someone a little later, a few years later, well, maybe a few hundred years later. Uh, and in Jude 1.9, it tells us, Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Interesting circumstance, because here is Christ for the first time about to perform something that has never been done before. Raise someone from the dead. This is the very first resurrection in the entire history of the universe. And so Satan comes and he begins to contend, to dispute, to challenge this claim of Christ in claiming the body of Moses to resurrect him. 
Because up until that point, Satan, of course, understood that all those who died were his permanently. Christ, of course, rebukes Satan. He resurrects Moses and takes him to heaven. And uh, Jewish tradition says that was about three days after Moses had died. The children of Israel stayed mourning for Moses around the mountain for 30 days. He was already taken to heaven to be welcomed, of course, by Enoch. And Moses' timing here was roughly 1,500 years before Christ. And uh, Moses was later joined, of course, by Elijah. As we know the story, the chariot uh, and whirlwind came and took Elijah. And the timing there is approximately 850 BC. So here are these three men with this common denominator between all three in that they are the only humans who are in heaven, correct? As far as we know. And of course, they, they spent hundreds and hundreds of years together talking and getting to know each other and uh, growing closer to each other. But not only were they talking together, of course, they would have been talking with none other than the Son of God himself. And I would imagine that one very popular and common theme of discussion between them is the plan of salvation, where the Son of God would come one day as a man in order to save mankind. You see, up to that point, the plan of salvation was not yet carried out. You realize that? It was yet future. And so actually, these men had something to look forward to. We often think of these men as having arrived in heaven and having been saved forever and that they are all safe and secure and they have nothing else to look forward to. These men were indeed safe, but their salvation was not yet accomplished because the Son of God had not yet come. You with me? Their place in heaven was actually dependent on something that would still happen in the future. And so this is what I'm saying. The subject of their conversations with Christ would have definitely involved the time when he would come as a man and when he would come and accomplish salvation for them. In other words, they were a preview. They were exceptional samples of what the plan of salvation would accomplish. And because of that, their place and their standing in heaven was still dependent on something that would come in the future, even though they are already there. You with me? Now, that sounds like a very strange thing to say, but hopefully we'll see because, brothers and sisters, that is the effect of the cross of Christ. That is the impact of the cross of Christ. What they looked forward to is what everyone else was looking forward to and what was promised to humanity. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And of course, this promise of salvation that one day, the Messiah would come, the seed of the woman would come for the purpose of what? Crushing the serpent's head, taking on Satan and destroying him and accomplishing the plan of salvation. God says that he will do that. And on the strength of that promise, God was able to do a number of things for those who believed that promise, as we shall see. So all the while in heaven, here is Enoch and Moses and Elijah, and they are looking down on the earth, watching what is going on. And all the while while they are watching, while this promise was given from Eden, all the while as they look down, they see that the serpent's head was not yet crushed. In other words, Satan was not yet defeated. Isn't that right? Because the promise is 
One day when the seed would come, this would happen. This is why this would have been a subject of their conversations over hundreds and hundreds of years with Christ. And of course, this promise uh, of the Messiah was repeated throughout the scriptures a number of times to Abraham in Genesis 22, 18. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. The seed that would come, that would bring a blessing to all nations through the line of Abraham. This was the central and most important promise of all the promises that were given to Abraham. It is the gospel promise, really. Paul says the gospel was before preached unto Abraham, God telling him, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's the gospel message. That is salvation message. That is what the seed would accomplish. That is what Enoch and Moses and Elijah were looking forward to, even though they are already in heaven for hundreds of years. Some thousands, in Enoch's case, for thousands of years. And of course, the scripture talks about all the different things that the Messiah would accomplish. Many, many prophecies talk about him when he would be wounded, when he would be uh, bearing our sins, when he would finish the transgression, when he would make reconciliation for iniquity, when he would bring in everlasting righteousness, when he would seal up the vision and prophecy. All the different prophecies of what the Messiah would one day accomplish was the hope of all the ages for all the believers when Christ would come. And of course it was, like I said, based on that promise and all those who believed that promise that God would accomplish this for his people, God was able to actually take people all the way to heaven on the strength of that promise. I don't want to underestimate that and I want to come back to that in a little while. Now, I want to clarify a point here just so I'm not misunderstood. God's plan of salvation is always the same. Mankind is always saved by grace through faith. Before the cross and after the cross. The grace through faith was available to these people through promise. And then we're going to come back to the part after the cross and see how that impacts us today. And so for hundreds and thousands of years, like I said, here is Enoch and Moses and Elijah sitting in heaven, looking down, beholding the outworking of the kingdom of Satan, waiting for the time when the seed would come, when he would defeat and crush Satan's head. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they lost life. Isn't that right? And in order for Christ to redeem them, he had to deal with what was introduced into humanity. That is death. Death came into the human race, into the human stream. And the race of Adam began to die. And Christ had to deal with this death problem. That's why he had to come and he had to bring to humanity the antidote of death, which is what? Life. And Christ himself says that in Matthew 20 and verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the life of the Son of God. And of course, he was speaking here as the Son of of man. When was this eternal life promised? All the way from the beginning. When was this eternal life delivered and given to humanity? When Christ came to give it. And on the strength of that promise and the fulfillment, that is what the plan of salvation is all about. That is why the scripture highlights this promise in the expression that's used in Revelation that he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That is the promise of the Messiah who would one day come as a man 
and die and give his life as a ransom for many. And this is exactly what took place. And so, brothers and sisters, the point I want to illustrate here is this. This event, this cross of Christ, is the central and most important event in the entire history of the universe. You realize that? This is the central theme of the whole history of the universe. And like I said, when I talk about the cross, I'm talking about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. That's what the cross biblically means. It's not just the one day or the wooden cross. You with me? So important is this event that one day, God is going to move the capital of the universe. He's going to bring his throne and put it on that spot where that event happened as an eternal memorial to its importance. That's how important that is. And that is why Paul says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Christ. And of course, when Christ came down from heaven to earth, he came to meet Satan and he met with temptation. He met with trial. He met with suffering and he was defeating Satan at every step of the way. In the wilderness, as he led up to the final events of his life, and ultimately, of course, in the Garden of Eden and at his crucifixion, Satan was being defeated until the climax of his defeat on the cross when Christ actually said what? It is finished. And when Christ said, it is finished, he was referring to a number of things. I want to focus on one particular aspect. What was finished? You ever thought about that? What exactly was finished when he said, it is finished? He himself answers it because it's the promise really that was given. And the fulfillment of the promise now had come to pass. This is why we're saying this event is, is the crowning event in the entire history of the universe. There is never ever going to be another event in the eternity of the future that will match what happened here. You realize that? And the direct recipients of the benefits of this important event is humanity. Not just humanity, the whole universe. But first in line is humanity. And all this time we have these three people who are alive in heaven who are waiting and longing and looking forward to when that would take place. That's why I want to illustrate it from their perspective a little bit. So maybe we can appreciate a fresh insight. What did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? What was finished? Let's look at a couple of verses that will paint it for us. Matthew 1, 21. And she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus in Hebrew, Yeshua. For he shall save his people from their sins. This was the time when the Messiah would come to save his people from their sins. I want to ask you a thought question. Is Enoch and Moses and Elijah part of his people? He came to save his people from their sins. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they were singing in heaven at all. They were saved from earth, taken to heaven. But the Messiah was still to deal with the sins that they had committed while on earth, as we shall see. And so they were looking forward to that, to what he would accomplish. And of course, at the end of his life in John 17, 4, Jesus says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have what? Finished 
the work which thou hast given me to do. What was the work? To save his people from their sins. And on the cross he says, it is finished. In other words, he has saved his people from their sins. He has made an end of sin. He has finished the transgression. That's the accomplishment of the cross. In other words, Satan was defeated. Christ had condemned sin in the flesh. He had met Satan and he defeated him and he said, it is finished. And that is why the cross illustrates for us the fulfillment of that promise. The crushing of the serpent's head by the seed of the woman. Not only was Satan crushed, brothers and sisters, but something actually happened to him as a result of the victory of Christ. Something happened to him. Christ refers to that in John chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. Now the judgment, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. What's Christ mean here? He's talking about something that will happen to Satan called what? Casting out. And he says this casting out is now when this judgment happens and he links it with what event? With him being lifted up from the earth. What's that? That is the cross. In other words, at the crucifixion of Christ, Christ says not only is Satan going to be defeated, but he will be cast out. Or cast out of where? And what does that mean? The book of Revelation gives us a little bit more insight into that. In Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, before we read these verses, you know Revelation 12 starts with the woman standing on the moon, clothed in the sun, with a crown on her head. And the woman there represents what? Let me, let me go back so to save you from the temptation of reading ahead, okay? Revelation 12 talks about the woman, and the woman symbolizes what? The church. And this woman is pregnant. She's about to have a child who's to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and the dragon is there about to devour that child. That child is who? Christ. And then it says that child was caught up unto God and to his throne, of course, referring to the ascension of Christ. And it's in that context and after those verses that we have these verses that we're familiar with, verse 7 down to 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. What time did this war take place? We usually believe that this war is referring to the war that happened all the way at the beginning, maybe before creation, when Lucifer and his angels were cast out. Now, there was a war then, but this verse is actually emphasizing something that happened after the ascension of Christ. This war, brothers and sisters, is the casting out of Satan that Christ referred to when he said, now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Lucifer was cast out of heaven as a result of the life and death and, of course, resurrection of the Son of God. Let's see how this goes on in that passage to clarify that. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice out of heaven, sorry, saying, in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. 
connected with the casting out of Satan is this announcement that goes out in heaven loudly saying, now is come salvation. That's what Christ had accomplished on the cross when he said it is finished. As a result of that, Satan was cast out of heaven. He lost his place as the representative of earth. Remember when in the story of Job, uh, Satan goes to heaven and uh, God asks him, where do you come from? He says, I come from earth, from going, walking to and fro, up and down, all over the planet. He claimed the planet as is because he had stolen, he had wrested that dominion from Adam. And he maintained that dominion so long as he was not defeated for 4,000 years. On the cross, Christ, as the last Adam, came and took back the dominion. And so Satan lost his place in heaven of the representative of the earth and he was cast down. And as a result of that, this announcement goes out in heaven on loudspeaker. Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Because the accuser has been cast down. <laughs> Who do you think heard that announcement? Enoch, Moses, and Elijah. They were waiting for that. They were waiting for that. Looking forward to when that happened. And so as a result of this, the next verse tells us, verse 12, Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. There was rejoicing in heaven as a result of what Christ accomplished and in Satan cast, being cast down. I put it to you, brothers and sisters, that uh, the first line in that choir of rejoicing was Enoch and Moses and Elijah. They were rejoicing because salvation had now come. That's what they had been looking for all the while. I want to read a statement from Spirit Prophecy and just make some comments in light of this. 7 BC, it says, The casting down of Satan as an accuser of the brethren in heaven was accomplished by the great work of Christ in giving up his life. That's what Revelation 12 is talking about. And so, if we put that in our diagram, <clears throat> the announcement is made, Now has come salvation. Because the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And so Enoch, Moses, and Elijah rejoiced. Enoch waited for 3,000 years for this to take place, for salvation to be accomplished. He believed that salvation would one day be accomplished, and his faith in that promise enabled God to take him to heaven. But while he was still in heaven, he was still waiting for salvation to be accomplished. Now it has been accomplished for him and for Moses and for Elijah and for the whole human race because it is finished. That's why the resurrection of Christ, Jesus raised people from the dead. Remember that? As evidence that he had obtained the keys of hell and of death. And when he raised these people from the dead, we don't see Satan coming to contend with him like he contended with him when he came to raise Moses. You remember that? Why did Satan not come and contend? Because it was game over. He knew it. He was defeated. You see, when Christ came to resurrect Moses, Satan was not yet defeated. So in essence, he came to Christ and says, Ho, oh, 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 what do you think you're doing? You have no right to do this. He belongs to me. You have not defeated me. We don't see any of that when Christ resurrected those saints from the grave. Why? Because Satan was now defeated. 
he was cast out when Christ ascended and went back to heaven. And Moses was watching. I find that really interesting. Now I want to ask you a thought question. Because I know maybe some what I'm, what I'm saying might sound a little bit far out, but I want us to think about this together. I don't want to, I don't say these things to startle people or upset people or annoy people or or to disagree with people because I like to do that. But I want us to really see something deeper in the cross. And so I, I want you to think about this for a minute. When Christ was here on earth as a man, when he was meeting sin and temptation and trial, was it possible for Christ to sin? It was. Well, you sure about that? Okay, that's good. You don't sound <coughs> like you're disagreeing here, so that's a good sign. Was it possible for Christ to fail? It was possible. Now, <coughs> I want to ask you a question. If Christ had failed, praise God he didn't. If Christ had failed, what do you think would have happened to Enoch and Moses and Elijah? Okay, I want you to think about that. Okay, give that some thought. Because remember, their place in heaven was dependent on what Christ would accomplish. And so I find it really interesting and very significant that in the closing scenes of Christ's ministry, just before Christ was crucified, we have this event on the Mount of Transfiguration when God sends Moses and Elijah to encourage Christ. Maybe to recount some of the discussions they might have had for hundreds of years while he was still the son of God when he, before he came as a man. To encourage him, to strengthen him. And to represent the result of the work that he would accomplish. And Moses and Elijah, as we know, they represent you know, all the redeemed, all the classes of the redeemed. Because of the success of Christ, they went through a before and after experience in heaven. And I like to illustrate it in the way, you know, today when you, when you want to buy a house, you usually cannot afford it. And so you go get a mortgage, right, or you get a loan from the bank, and you make a promise to keep paying, you know, these repayments. But when you make that promise and sign the contract, you can go and live in the house already, right, even though it's not yours. And you can uh, behave and, and act as if the house was yours, change things a little bit. But all the while, the house is not really yours, until you make the very last payment. In essence, Moses, Elijah, and Enoch were living in the house, waiting until the final payment would be made. Christ made the final payment. And so before Christ made the final payment, they were living and, and uh, enjoying it. Now that he made it, that place is securely theirs forever. No one can come and take them out. You with me? So nothing changed, they were still in heaven, but their place in heaven was now permanently secured forever. And not only them, all those who believe like them. That's what Christ, brothers and sisters, has accomplished. Let me read a couple of statements to that effect. Here's what Sister White says. Remember that Christ risked all, tempted like as we are, he staked his, his, even his own eternal existence upon the issue of the conflict. Heaven itself was imperiled for our redemption. That is really serious. Heaven itself, not just Enoch and Moses and Elijah, heaven itself was imperiled. He risked his very own existence. Praise God that he succeeded. 
Here's another one. Had the head of Christ been touched, the hope of the human race would have perished. Divine wrath would have come upon Christ as it came upon Adam. Christ and the church would have been without hope. I'll ask you a question. Is Enoch, Moses, and Elijah, are they members of his church? So what would have happened to them? They would have been without hope if he failed. Praise God, he didn't fail. Are you with me? You're seeing something here. Hopefully you're saying, wow, the cross of Christ means so much. It made a difference even to people who were already in heaven. How much more to us here on earth? You with me? That is, brothers and sisters, the power of the cross. <clears throat> Eternal life was given when Christ came. And all through the ages of the past, it was promised. Now this promise is of great, great significance. The promise of salvation all through the Old Testament. As we said, the final repayment for that promise, for that contract, the repayment was made at the cross. And then reality kicked in. I want us to notice the difference between the promise and the reality. And I want to look at two practical aspects as to the difference between the promise and the reality. I don't want to just talk here about theories that relate to people in heaven, and then leave it there. It has to have some practical relevance for us today. And in the practical aspects, I want to examine some points that relate to us in illustrating the difference between the promise and the reality. The first practical point we already alluded to is the fact that all this time for 4,000 years, Satan was not crushed, he was not yet defeated. I don't know if we really realize the meaning of that. We, brothers and sisters, are living on this side of the cross after that has been accomplished. We're living at a time when Satan's head has been crushed, when he has been defeated. Praise God. Enoch now does not have to hear the accusations of Satan against the brethren in heaven. For 3,000 years in heaven, he heard the accusations of Satan. You know he was there when Satan came to accuse Job? Enoch heard these accusations. He doesn't have to go through that anymore. Why? Satan has been defeated. He has been cast out. Salvation has been accomplished. Christ has come. Christ, in reference to this, talked to his disciples one day in Luke chapter 10, verse 18 and 19. He said, He said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. What was he referring to here when he says, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven? He was looking forward to the results of his accomplished work and its impact and prophetically saying, I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. The context here is as soon as the disciples came back from that first missionary trip and they were rejoicing because they said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us in your name. And Christ said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on these scorpions and on these serpents and over all the power of the enemy. This power, brothers and sisters, that Christ was going to give them is a direct result of what he would accomplish on the cross. It's the power that would come about as a result of Satan falling as lightning from heaven. You with me? That's the context in what he's talking about. In other words, Christ is telling them he's going to give them a power that 
was not yet given before Satan was defeated. Correct? Something is going to come only after Satan is defeated, this advancement of power. Now, what am I saying? Am I trying to say there was no power before Satan was defeated? Of course not. There was. But the defeat of Satan brought a greater power for God's people. And this is what Christ was referring to here. You see, his words, brothers and sisters, have to mean something. Christ was not telling them, I'm going to give you what you already have all along, was he? He's telling them, because of Satan falling from heaven, his defeat is going to enable me now to give you this advancement of power that was promised from before. An advanced ground. This is part of the difference between the promise and the fulfillment. The victory of the cross. I want to read a statement to that effect as well because I don't want to be misunderstood in what I'm saying. And at the same time, I want us to truly appreciate what Christ actually meant when he said those words. In Desire of Ages, well, before we go, this is on this side, of course, Satan has been defeated on this side of the cross. In the book Desire of Ages, we have the following beautiful statement. It says, henceforth, Christ's followers were to look upon Satan as a conquered foe. Upon the cross, Jesus was to gain the victory for them. That victory, he desired them to accept as their own. And then it quotes Luke chapter 10, verse 19, which we just read. Behold, I give unto you power to tread upon scorpions and serpents and over all the power of the enemy. What does the word henceforth mean? Or henceforward? From now on. Does it mean before that? Christ is saying because the result of his work, from now on, he wants his people to realize what has happened. To look upon Satan as a conquered foe because he has defeated him. Was he conquered before and defeated? No. It was promised that one day he would be. Christ said this day has come. And as a result of this defeat of Satan, I give unto you power over all the power of the enemy. We do not appreciate the great, great gift that has been given to us enough. All too often we still live as if Satan is yet to be conquered. Isn't that right? You see, Satan has gone out on a big propaganda campaign to convince everyone that he has not yet been defeated. And it seems that too often Christians fall for that false advertising. Right? We live our lives as if Satan would one day be defeated. One day, someday, just not today. Jesus says, from henceforth, from that point onward, he wants all his followers to look upon Satan for what he really is, a defeated and conquered foe. And as a, as a result of that, we have this power. Now, like I said before, I'm not trying to say that there was no power before the cross. There certainly was. But there is a great expansion that takes place. Now let me read another statement here that also gives us a little bit of an insight <coughs> into what we're talking about. As soon as, this is from the Review and Herald, as soon as Adam sinned, the Son of God presented himself as surety for the human race with just as much power to avert the doom pronounced upon the guilty as when he died upon the cross of Calvary. Christ's promise of salvation enabled him to bestow Power upon his people. I want us not to misunderstand something as well. Because when we read statements, it's important to see what it says. And it's important to see what it does not say. The power 
that Christ exerted as a result of his promise here is the power to do what? To avert the doom of Adam and Eve and of course the race. What does that mean? The power and promise that Christ would accomplish salvation enabled Adam and Eve to continue to live and not die instantaneously. That power is the result of Christ, of what Christ would one day do. That enabled him with the same force of power to avert their death, to avert their doom and the doom of humanity. In other words, it allowed them to live this probationary life. Isn't that right? Rather than, than die instantaneously. All the while, while they lived that, Satan was yet to be defeated. And when he was defeated, then Christ gave this advanced power because of the defeat of Satan. You with me? That's why the promise of Christ was, let the punishment fall on me. I will stand in man's place, give them another chance. The power of that promise enabled Adam and Eve to live in order to receive that second chance. The power of Christ's promise and the great significance of it. I want to read in connection with that some other statements that help paint the picture a little clearer. In Review and Herald as well, we have the following. The fruit of the forbidden tree seemed pleasant to the eye and desirable to the taste. That's Adam and Eve. They ate and fell. They transgressed God's just command and became sinners. Satan's triumph was complete. He then had the vantage ground over the, the race. Because Adam fell, who got the advantage? Satan had the advantage. He had vantage ground over not just Adam, but all the children of Adam, over the race. How long did he hold that vantage ground for? For 4,000 years until the Son of God came on that ground and dealt with him. But all during the time that Satan had this vantage ground, the doom of Adam and Eve was averted by the power of the promise of Christ. You with me? Now, I like this next statement because it puts everything in perspective. Notice what it says. This is from Signs of the Times. But a refusal to drink this cup, referring to Christ, would mean that no human being could be saved. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the final scenes of Christ's life. Only by his suffering and death could human beings be placed on vantage ground. Isn't that interesting? Same words, same terminology. So if we were to illustrate this, now before I go to the illustration, what's the only way that humanity could be placed on vantage ground? By the suffering and death of the Son of God. The fulfillment of the promise would turn things around, would turn tables upside down. And so, like I said, if we were to put that in our illustration, for 4,000 years, we're told, Satan had vantage ground. Only by the death and by the suffering and death of the Son of God could he place man on vantage ground when he defeated Satan. But all during this time, before and after the cross, the power of the promise enabled God to avert the doom of Satan. That's why human beings could still be alive while Satan had vantage ground. Not only could they be alive, but if they believed the promise, three of them were taken to heaven as shining examples of the power of the promise of God. 
But even while they were in heaven, Satan still had the vantage ground over the race. And that's why only when that announcement went out on loudspeaker in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Then those that were in heaven rejoiced because now the human race for the first time has been placed on vantage ground. Hallelujah. We have no idea, brothers and sisters, what Christ really accomplished doing. Humanity was placed on vantage ground for the very first time ever because now a human had defeated Satan on the behalf of all other humans. Now someone might say, well, brother, are you trying to say here that there is an advantage and a disadvantage here before and after the cross? No, I'm not trying to say that. The spirit of prophecy says that enough. I don't need to say any more. Before the cross... Humanity was at a disadvantage. After the cross, we have been given an advantage. Now, someone might say, well, well this doesn't seem fair. Because this, this uh, uh, implies that God's character is perhaps not fair. How can these people be at a disadvantage? And this is a, a fairly common uh, situation that people say, well, this, this doesn't seem to make sense. I want to address that just briefly here because all too often, we judge God's fairness based on our opinion of what is fair and not fair. You with me? God says his thoughts are not our thoughts. They're actually so much higher than ours as the heaven is higher than the earth. Our standard of what's fair and not fair is not how God operates. Now, I'm not trying to say God is not fair. He is very fair. But I'll ask you a question. Two children born in the, in the world today. One is born in the heathen jungles of Africa and one is born in a conservative Seventh-day Adventist home. Does one child have an advantage over the other in their upbringing? Is God fair or not fair? Salvation is available equally to both children, but the circumstances that surround their obtaining of that salvation is different. God is not unfair. God is fair. People before the cross are going to stand on the same sea of glass as those after the cross. They're going to have salvation equally by grace through faith. But the circumstances that surround their obtaining of that salvation are different. They obtain salvation by believing the promise while Satan had the advantage. We obtain salvation by believing the fulfilled promise while the human race has the advantage. There is a difference. You see the difference? And to try and equate the two is to really diminish the impact of the cross. So God is very fair. He's actually more fair than you and I think and believe. That's the power of the promise, brothers and sisters. And this is why we're told in the following beautiful statement. The kingdom of grace was instituted immediately after the fall of man. Yet it was not actually established until the death of Christ. The promise of salvation made to the sinful pair in Eden was ratified. The kingdom of grace, which had before existed by the promise of God, was then established. Kingdom by promise, established. Before the cross, after the cross. Is it the same kingdom? Yes. Are they going to be the same citizens in that kingdom? Yes, but there are two very distinct periods and parts to how that came about before the cross and after the cross. This is why the cross is the great center of the whole history of the world. And it will be the history of the universe. In the, in the future universe, we're going to refer to periods of before the cross and 
after the cross. You realize that? Because the cross is the seal and security of the whole universe that sin and iniquity will never rise another time. That is why God is going to shift his government, his throne, and put it on that seal permanently. And he will honor the location when that, where that took place. You with me? That means a lot, brothers and sisters. And so when we don't rec recognize the, the difference of before and after, we are in danger of minimizing the impact of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Another aspect I want to quickly deal with, first, this is the first practical aspect as far as the difference between before and after the cross. That is the defeat of Satan. The kingdom of Satan being defeated and destroyed and finished, as Jesus says. The other aspect is, is uh, a beautiful one that I have, I have recently truly come to appreciate in a fresh light. And that has to do with the priesthood of Christ. If I ask you the question, who is the first priest that's mentioned in the scriptures? Okay. Either Aaron or Melchizedek usually are the answers given. Okay, if you said Aaron, very good. He's the most popular usually because he's mentioned a lot. But Melchizedek was first. Uh, you remember Melchizedek, he met Abraham in Genesis 14, 18. We're told Melchizedek, king of Salem, broke forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the most high God. I have a, I met, could you wear my water bottle just under the seat there? I'm just running dry a little bit. Thank you. Uh, Melchizedek is the very first priest, priest mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures. He's mentioned in the story, like we said, and uh, he's only mentioned that once in the Old Testament. That's why it's, uh, you know, we can miss him. Fair enough. And so as the first priest, uh, we probably wouldn't even think much more of him had it not been for the fact that he's mentioned only once again, I'm sorry, in Psalms and in Hebrews. Paul talks about him a lot in Hebrews. And so this is why he's of importance. So I want to ask you a question in light of that, because Paul says Christ was to be made a priest after the order of Melchizedek, right? So this is important for us to understand about the priesthood of Christ, which we are told is vital. The ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is a central pillar of our faith. That's a paraphrase. Now I want to ask you a question. I want you to think carefully about this question. Was Christ a high priest in heaven during the Old Testament period? When you think about that question carefully, it's usually yes or no. And uh, I want you to really give it some, some thought. Was Christ a high priest in the Old Testament period in heaven? Okay, we have some yes and we have some no. All right, the, I'll tell you this. Commonly as Adventists, we assume that the answer is yes. I actually assumed that at one point, and that's what I always thought. I, I probably actually never gave it that much thought because we think, well, He's a high priest now, and that's such an important truth. It's called a central pillar truth. Then, of course, he always was. But the answer is actually different. The evidence supports the fact that Christ was not a high priest in the Old Testament in heaven. He only became a high priest after he took on humanity. Now, this is the claim I'm making. I'm throwing out there, and you might think, whoa, that's a little bit heavy. Let's look at some scripture together. Let's give it some thought and see what we can learn. So this is the claim we're making, that all through the Old Testament period, there was no high priest in the sanctuary in heaven above, while Enoch and Moses and Elijah were in heaven. Hebrews 5.1 tells us, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for 
sins. In order for Christ to be a priest for humanity, he had to be a human being. He had to be a man. When did he become a man? When he came to earth, not before. So could he be a priest before? No. That's only one verse. We'll look at a few. But this is significant. That's why, brothers and sisters, Melchizedek was a man on earth. Melchizedek, you know, a lot of people say, who was Melchizedek? And there's all kinds of theories, and some of them are really strange and bizarre as to who the identity of, of this man was. He was a man. He was a human being. Whatever you want to do with Melchizedek, he had to be a human because he was a priest for humans. Let's look at another verse in the same book, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 3. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer, speaking about Christ. Every priest has to offer what? Gifts and sacrifices. So it was necessary that Christ, to be a priest, he had to have something to offer. What does he offer? Himself, his life. You remember he said, uh, the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he offers. When did he obtain and make this offering? When he came to earth and on the cross. So could he be a priest before he had something to offer? No. Only as a human could he be a priest for humans. That's why the Bible says he is... Touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And he took on humanity that he might be a sympathetic and faithful high priest. This is a paraphrase in Hebrews chapter 2 towards the end of the chapter. You will find that that's what it says. It is for this reason, brothers and sisters. It is because there was no high priest in the sanctuary in heaven above. It is this, for this fact that God actually instituted an earthly priesthood. Because there was no heavenly priesthood. He instituted an earthly priesthood with all its associated instructions that were given. To, pin, to point forward to the time when there will come a heavenly, better priesthood. You with me? You see, it's very important to keep in mind. If there was a heavenly high priest during the Old Testament period, then why did God give them an inferior earthly priesthood? Think about that. If they already had a heavenly high priest, why would he give them an earthly one? That the book of Hebrews tells us could not cleanse sin. It is because there was no heavenly priesthood. And this is why we have this promise that is now Realize. I ask you another question. When was Christ ordained as a high priest for his people? Okay, at Pentecost. That's right, we talked about that the other night. When in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, it says, God speaking to his son, uh, unto the son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, has what? Anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This is his anointing as the high priest of his people. It happened at the same time in heaven, when that took place, Pentecost occurred on earth as an indication that the high priest now was inaugurated. That a human being now was in heaven who could function as our high priest for human beings. You remember when God gave the instruction to Moses to 
Oh, before we go there, let me just get to that. When God gave the instruction to Moses to anoint Aaron as a high priest, remember that he had to take the anointing oil and anoint him as a high priest. Could Aaron function as a priest before he was anointed? No. Could Christ function as a priest before he was anointed as a priest? No. And he was anointed on the day of Pentecost. You with me? There's a number of different ways that the scripture illustrates these facts for us. And this is why in Hebrews 8, let me just go back to that. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, it says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. What is the now that Paul is referring to? By his experience on earth. He obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. We now have this high priest. Christ is the high priest. And so if we were to put that in our illustration, Christ is now our high priest. We have a heavenly priesthood. We no longer have an earthly priesthood. And in Hebrews, there are a number of places where it talks about that. Uh, Christ is high priest. Let's look at another verse. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? This is a very meaty verse. It says there would another priest arise while the Aaronic priesthood was on earth. It pointed forward to another priest that would arise. And he would arise, he would be of a superior order. That's why he's called after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron. A superior priesthood was coming. While that priesthood was not yet here, God instituted this Aaronic priesthood. You see, there's a very important point. You cannot have multiple priesthoods running simultaneously. You cannot have multiple priests working simultaneously. You can't have a priesthood in heaven and a priesthood on earth. You can only have one priesthood, one ministration at a time. You with me? We're going to see verses to support that as well. Because that would create confusion. That's why today on earth, we don't have earthly priests. That's why the full system of worship today on earth institutes earthly priests in order to obscure the work of the heavenly priest. You realize that? That system of earthly priests is borrowed directly from the system of earthly priests of Aaron. And the earthly priesthood serves as an obstruction of the heavenly priesthood of Christ. You realize that? I'm talking about the Roman system. I want to spell it out so nobody gets confused. That is why we have this beautiful promise of another priest that would arise. Now he is here. We have this heavenly Priesthood. So I want us to look at that just briefly. Earthly priesthood before the cross, heavenly priesthood after the cross. Satan not defeated before the cross, Satan defeated after the cross. That's why the human race has been placed on vantage ground as a result of the work of Christ. Hallelujah. Hebrews 9.8. We're almost there. You still with me so far? Everyone on board? We're going to eat in a few minutes, Okay. But we're not eating just here. We'll just finish this meal first. Hebrews 9, 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. Now I'm quoting a fair bit from the book of Hebrews here. 
I, I, you know, recently I did this. I went through the book, the epistle to the Hebrews, and I read from beginning to, I actually heard it on, I was, I was driving at a long drive and I heard it. And some things just jumped out at me in a way that I'd never seen before. And so I recommend to you that you take the epistle to the Hebrews and in one sitting, start and don't stop till you finish. It'll take you maybe 45 minutes to an hour, but you will see the whole scope and the whole point of what the book is all about. All too often we read bits and pieces here and there, you know, scattered. And I don't have time to go through the whole book now. I would if I could, but I don't. That's why I'm looking at some snippets. But do that. Do yourself that favor. You will be richly blessed. The whole punchline of the epistle to the Hebrews is that we now have a high priest that no one had before the cross. That's the whole punchline of it. This is one of the verses that illustrates that. It says, look, it says, the way into the holiest, that is into the heavenly, into the sanctuary in heaven, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. What's the first tabernacle? The earthly tabernacle with all its system. While that was in place, the way into the holiest, into the heavenly, was not yet made manifest. What's manifest mean? Revealed. In other words, it is not revealed or it is not, it is hidden. In other words, can it be used? Can it be found? No. So access into the heavenly sanctuary was not possible so long as the earthly tabernacle was standing. You realize that? That's what Paul is saying here, right? I'm getting some really puzzled looks. This is what the verse says. Look at the verse. Don't hear me. Look at the verse. Paul says, the way into the holiest was not manifest. It was not revealed. It was not apparent. It could not be found. So long as the earthly was standing. That's actually why God gave the earthly. To fill in that gap while everyone was waiting for the high priest to be qualified to enter into his work. And that is why in a very visible manner, God indicated the shift and the change of ministration from the earthly to the heavenly. When very, very significantly, when Christ died on the cross, what happened? You remember what happened? The veil in the earthly tabernacle was rent, bringing to an end that earthly tabernacle ministry and service, indicating that now we have access to the heavenly. It has been now made manifest by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us by his blood. And so we enter in through the veil that is through his flesh. We looked at that verse the other day. The humanity of Christ, brothers and sisters, is what gives humanity access to the heavenly sanctuary. You realize that? We now have a human being who can finally enter into the sanctuary as our high priest. We never had that before. That is why I'm saying there was no high priest in the Old Testament before he took on humanity. That is why God gave a temporary priesthood to fill that time as a promise of what he would, he would accomplish. And of course, the end of that, this is what we talk about in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This signifies the beginning of the New Covenant, the promise that was given. This is exactly what Jesus referred to when he said in Mark 14, 24, and he said unto them, this is the blood of my, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. And the blood means life. This is the active ingredient, as we said, of the New Covenant. Now, the new covenant is not something future. It is something that is present. That's what Jesus said. He gave it in his blood. 
The greatest sacrifice ever has been accomplished. It is given in the blood of Christ. Hebrews uh, 9 and verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of a new testament or new covenant. Testament means covenant. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. This is another deep verse here. What's it talking about? Through death, Christ could redeem the transgressions that were committed under the first testament or the first covenant. What's that? All the sins that were committed under the first covenant, or in other words, before the cross. When were these sins dealt with? When Christ died. That's what it's saying. So in other words, all through this time, all these sins were accumulating and building up, not being dealt with. Waiting for the time when Christ would come and die and make an end of sin. Let me put it to you this way. The sin of Moses and Elijah was not dealt with until Christ came. That is why we're saying their place in heaven was still dependent on the fulfillment of the promise. Now, this does not mean that they lived all this time in heaven in trembling and in fear and in quaking, wondering if anything, you know, if, if something is going to endanger their place. No, it just illustrates the fact that everything was hinging on the work of Christ, on the promise. They believed the promise. They didn't have doubt in the promise. It's because of their faith in the promise that they actually walked into heaven. And they continued to believe that promise fully. Because God did not just promise it like that. The Bible says God promised it and then he confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. That's how strong that promise is. That promise, brothers and sisters, has come to pass. We have the reality. We have a high priest in heaven. He made that final payment. And he established something. That was only promised all through the ages. I want to deal with a few points here because I want to clarify some points just so I'm not misunderstood. And so we're closing here. So we're almost there. When I talk about Christ as not being a high priest, I want to make a distinction here. It's a very important distinction to keep in mind. First of all, like I said, we're living at this time when we have a heavenly priesthood as a result of what was accomplished at the cross. People before the cross were living, looking forward to that time. When I say they don't have a high priest in heaven and that the sanctuary in heaven was inoperable as far as dealing with sin because it had no high priest, I'm not trying to say that there was no mediator. All during this period, there was a mediator, a go-between between God and man. Christ, the Son of God, is the mediator. Now, a mediator, when he was mediating all through the Old Testament, he was not mediating as a human being, was he? When did he begin mediating as a human being? After the cross. And so now he is mediating as a high priest. His high priesthood is, you know, uh, synonymous with humanity. Okay, this is the point. So all during the time before, Christ was the mediator. He's the way to the Father. He's the one through whom the Father communicates with the world. He's the mediator. But for the first time, we now have a human mediator, i.e., a high priest. That's why Paul says we have one God and one mediator between God and man. Who is it? The man, 
Christ Jesus. He now mediates as a man for the first time. That was never possible before he became a man. Now, I want to deal with quickly here. In the, oh boy, our time is up. Moses and Enoch and Moses and Elijah, how did they get to the kingdom? They got to the kingdom by believing the promise fully of what God said he would do. They received power and assistance from the divine son of God. And God dealt with them and treated them based on their faith as if they were living on this side of the cross. He took them to heaven. But they accomplished that and they obtained that at a time when Satan was not yet defeated, when there was no high priest yet. And so for all these times, all, this, all these 3,000 years where Enoch was in heaven, he had no high priest in heaven. Now we do. I, I don't have time to go into all the details that this requires. I probably will have to do that in another study. But I want to put forward to you a few thoughts. They believed the promise and were taken to heaven. While yet Christ had not condemned sin in the flesh. Correct? Sin was not defeated in the way that it was when Christ came ever before. Even the most righteous man on earth did not accomplish what Christ accomplished. Correct? Because of that accomplishment of Christ, he has opened for us a floodgate whereby he can pour on us what the scriptures refer to as better things. In Hebrews chapter 11, oh, before, before we go there, forgot that point. You see, brothers and sisters, there is coming a time when human beings are going to be required to live in the sight of God without a mediator, right? This time period is at the very end, where there will be no mediator. Well, what does that mean? We will not have a human mediator. In other words, we will have no high priest. You see, to live this way in the sight of God without a mediator, without a high priest, and still stand, and still stand before him perfect, is something that is only possible because of what Christ has accomplished. It's only possible because of what Christ is accomplishing for us now in the heavenly sanctuary. Since 1844, because in, since in 1844, he walked into where? Into the most holy place. You see, when Christ came to earth as a man, and what he accomplished enabled him to pour out his life on his people in a way that was never possible before. The human divine life. And this human divine life, as he enters into the most holy place to cleanse the sanctuary, not only does he cleanse the heavenly sanctuary, but what else does he cleanse? The earthly sanctuary of the heart. He brings us up to a level that will enable us to live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. This is only possible after he does this, after he goes as a high priest, after he enters into the most holy, after he finally accomplishes and fulfills all the tokens of the atonement. And all the work of that. You with me? I don't want to lose you here and, and go on and on and on. But I just want to illustrate the point, brothers and sisters. That is why we have this progression. You know, when, when Pentecost, I was talking to someone, I was talking to Corey before, and we're talking about Pentecost. And when Pentecost happened and the pouring out of the Spirit there, this was an event that was unprecedented. It was never seen before in the history of the earth, Right? But even Pentecost is going to be exceeded 
When God's people get to a point where the high priest can now safely step out and they continue to live. They had a high priest beginning his ministry at Pentecost. We're going to come to a point where we're going to have the high priest step out. Do you realize what's in store for us? All these things are only possible because of his work as a high priest. They were not possible before the cross. You realize that? And that's why when Christ steps out, there's going to be a time of trouble such as never was. And then there's a lot of prophecies we can go into. I don't want to belabor the point. But the scripture illustrates this in this verse. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. And these all, speaking about all these heroes of faith, right? In Hebrews 11. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. What is the better thing that God provided for us? If you read the book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is about one thing only. It's about Christ as our high priest. All these people that were listed in, the, in Hebrews chapter 11, they did not have a heavenly high priest. You know who's listed in that book, in that chapter? Enoch and Moses and Elijah. All the while, while they were in heaven. Now they have that. Is Hebrews 11 is talking about all their period and their experience on earth. All these faithful men of God, they all obtained a good report through faith. They all believed and they were rewarded based on their faith. But there was something better that God was preparing for us. Now we have this something better, Paul is saying in the book of Hebrews. And because of this something better, we now have the very life of the Son of God that He lived on earth poured out into humanity. And this is what Christ was referring to when He spoke on the last great day of the feast in John chapter 7, verse 38 and 39. He that believeth on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, as He says here. Verse 39, But this say, spake He of the Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. What's the glorification of Jesus have to do with? His anointing as the high priest of his people. When he was anointed as the high priest of his people, he could now give to us this better thing. This Holy Spirit that was not yet given. What it's referring to here is the life of Christ on earth. It doesn't mean that there was no Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. No, 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 no. But that Spirit now comes to us with the added benefit and experience of what Christ accomplished. To enable us to come to a place where we can finally, if we truly grasp a hold of that, live in the sight of a God without a mediator. So I want to just close with that verse. I'll leave it there. And I pray that we... Catch a fresh glimpse of the cross and what the cross has accomplished. My point in the study is not to denigrate people who lived before the cross. My point is to highlight what the cross has accomplished. To appreciate what the cross has done, that is only possible as we see the contrast before and after. I'll give you a quick example that I want to close with. If I buy a house that's all run down and broken up and a big mess... And I go in and I renovate that house and work on it and transform it to be a palace. And I invite you to look at my work. And all you see is the palace. You will get some appreciation of my work and effort. Say, wow, you've done a good job. But if I pull out the drawer and say, hold on a minute. Here are some pictures of what it was like before. And I pull out the pictures of before 
and you see the after, all of a sudden your appreciation is going to shoot through the roof. You say, whoa, is that what it looked like? And your appreciation of my work and effort in restoring the house is magnified. You with me? In looking at before and after the cross, we're looking at a picture that helps us to appreciate the magnificent work that transformed the world. That work is Christ. Now, if someone would say, hold on, brother, this picture before and after, and they go to Photoshop, and they keep trying to touch the bad picture to fix it up a little bit and improve it, what does that do? It diminishes the effort that made the transformation. Let's not try and do that, brothers and sisters. God has given to us better things, glorious things, to enable us to come to a place where he can finally say, these are my people. Satan, give them your best shot. Let's pray and close together. If you were blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.